0: Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Welcome to the new year. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 9 together. As we do so, we will read verses 1 through 12, then I'll pray, and with God's help, I'll preach. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12, this is God's Word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I say that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net. Like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you asking you to speak to us. You've declared yourself most perfectly in your Son, Jesus Christ, and you've revealed yourself through kings and prophets and priests throughout time and given us your word. So this morning, We ask for mercy, we ask for grace, and we ask that you would make our hearts soft to receive the word, give us ears to hear, and may we then respond as doers of the word. We thank you for what you have done in us, and we are grateful for all of your blessings, but we ask for more today. Would you pour out your grace on us? I know, Lord, that this pleases you, and will bring honor and glory to the one who is the giver. May we then receive this with joy as we listen to your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may know the story, or uh, at least the name, Randy Pausch, uh, or you may know his book called The Last Lecture, or you may have heard of this before. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, a uh, very bright man, very successful. Uh, but at the age of 45, with a wife and three young kids, he learned that he had pancreatic cancer. And many of you know um, that this is a particularly deadly form of cancer. Uh, This wasn't in his plans. Uh, He wasn't an unhealthy person at all. Um, There wasn't any particular reason for him to deal with this and to be left and something like this to happen to him. In one sense, it just kind of seemed like dumb luck that this is the draw that he got. Successful person with young family and He gets pancreatic cancer. So Randy fought it with uh, all the different treatments that were possible. But in 2007, um, he got the word from the doctors that that his diagnosis was terminal. He was going to pass away. The cancer couldn't be stopped, and eventually the doctors told him that he really only had a few months left to live. Indeed, they were right. Uh, In July of 2008, at the age of 47, Randy died of complications from pancreatic cancer. But if you've read the last lecture or ever heard this lecture or him talk before, you know what makes Randy's story so interesting is that he got it. He learned something. He understood perspective. Now That's not to say that he was a Christian or that all of his vices in any way good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that he looked at his death and he was convinced and that he concluded that he should take this and live a certain way should impact the way that one lives their life. In his last lecture, he took the opportunity to actually not only speak to the students, but to leave a legacy and a message for his children, how it was that they should live in light of death. The imminence of Randy Pausch's death changed his perspective on living. And this is what we're dealing with today as we come to chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes. The inevitability the unpredictable nature of death. But this isn't a uh, YouTube motivational speech for you to tune I'm not just going to show that up here and we can all go home. Randy Paschel's advice is, is good, but it's certainly not Christian. Today we want to hear from Ecclesiastes on the same subject. Living life from the perspective that we are all going to die. The structure is simple. So kids, if you're following along, I'm going to give you three parts of the structure. It's really simple. The first six verses are about death. The middle ones, 7 through 10, are about life. And then the last two, 11 and 12, are about chance or fate. I'll explain those again. In verses 1 through 6, he talks about death, how it comes to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or how you've lived. Everyone dies. Then in verse 7 through 10, he tells us how we should live in response to that fact. How we should live since we're all going to die. And then in verse 11 and 12, he reminds us and talks about chance or fate or the times. In other words, he is going to remind us that we have no control over the times or the circumstances of our lives or of our deaths. Now, the reason I draw our attention to the structure is not to get geeky on you. I think it actually helps us understand what his point is. He is going to actually narrow in the middle to make sure that we get the point across this structure, he makes it clear that we are supposed to take away in this section 7 through 10. These are the exhortations, the things that he tells us to do. His point is not to give us information about death or fate or chance. His point is to tell us how to live in light of fate and death and chance. Thus, Cornerstone Bible Church, guys, if you're not a part, listen, this morning, God is speaking to us about how to live in light of death and fate and chance. Our job then is to listen carefully to what God says in this passage and respond with joyful obedience and probably also repentance so that we might be formed. Because make no mistake what's going on here today. We are coming to the text together. We want to respond in joyful obedience. We are being formed by God and His Word. As Jordan said last week, he is fitting us for purpose. Here's the passage in a single sentence, if you want to boil it all down. Since death is inevitable, and there is no way uh, to know when or how life will end, trust God and embrace God given, vigorous, joyful life. Let me say it again. Since death is inevitable, and there is no way to know when or how it will end, trust God and embrace a God-given, vigorous, joyful life. Or you may say, pursue a full life, a full life that God has given to us with all of its gifts. Let's see this from the text. So let's take a look at verse one here. He says, but all this I laid to heart, and examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now let's stop quickly here for a moment. I've said this before about the book of Ecclesiastes, but our author is not only a wise man, he certainly is, he is also an apologist. I've used that word before, meaning he's not only speaking to believers' wisdom, he is talking to unbelievers and reasoning with them about real life events and experiences that they're going through in their own lives. Compelling them, reasoning with them of the truth and of their common experience that points to a creator that they must respond to. And here he admits, he just kind of says it in front of everyone, he admits, he knows it, that everyone, the fate of the ones that fear God, he calls them wise and righteous, that their fate is actually unknown. He's never seen it. He says that he can't actually provide evidence or proof of what exactly happens after someone dies. The way it's said here is that they are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. He doesn't know. He hasn't been there. In other words, in his opening statement here, there's a complete trust in the promises of God. Not in science, not in logic, not in proof or evidence, but rather in the character and promise of God. This is what characterizes the righteous or the wise, those who fear God. They have placed themselves in the hand of God, allowing Him to decide what will happen for their eternity. It's a place of complete vulnerability. It's completely in God's hand. What will happen, we do not know. I just want to ask us then to stop for a moment. How about you when you think about these things? Does this describe the way that you interact with your death and eternity? The way that you think about forever? Complete Trust in the character of God. None of us know what happens as we draw our last breath. Let's, let's just be honest about it. None of us know what happens after this life. We don't have some sort of magical telescope that shows the afterlife. We don't know what it exactly looks like. This passage shows us that we have to look into eternity with complete and utter trust. And so we're faced with the decision, actually daily, about who or what we will trust. The passage shows us that the righteous and the wise dangle by an invisible thread of God's will. No one knows what he will do. All we have are his promises, and all we have are what he has told us about himself, his character. But I stand here today to tell you that is enough, brothers and sisters. I stand here to reason with you that this is the God who has made us and can be trusted even though we have not seen into the future. We do not know what happens beyond the last breath. I stand here on the promises of God's word to tell us and to remind us there is a sure and steady foundation in our Creator and that we can and must trust Him. What I'm really kind of saying too is that, guys, I haven't figured this out. There's another way that Paul says this, right? We are not people of the flesh. What I mean by that is he's not, not striving or figuring it out. We are not, just to let you know, we're not the religious intellectual class. We figured it out. No, we're actually the people of foolishness and of the promise. Do You realize that in science we go off of like all the facts and all the things that are going to come true, make sure that we have grounded in some sort of reality. We aren't people of the flesh and are striving and putting the pieces together. We are people of the promise. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4.23. He says that we are not sons of the slave woman, um, that in other words, like being born according to the flesh, human striving, us trying to make this happen somehow by our own power, but we are sons of the free woman, born through promise, relying on the promises of God. So I'm asking you, do you trust God? Do you trust his promises? You completely turn yourself over to his care, that you are willing to sit in his hand and his hand alone. It's therefore fitting that we should sing and confess and live as ones who hope in Christ and Christ alone. This is why we worship him. This is how he begins here in a section with the assumption that man will make a choice. We all will at some point. And the righteous and the wise ones will choose to entrust themselves to the hand of God. But he moves on. Look at verse 2. He says, It is the same for all, since the, event, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Now stop here for a moment. He says that we are all, subject to the same fate. When We know what he's talking about is death. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. He's going to say, this is exactly what I'm talking about. But here in 2 and 3, he makes the scary point that on the matter of death, it doesn't matter how you have lived. You will die. All of us will. Uh, the guy who loves the Lord, who gives money to the church for, for missions, to love others, to pursue his holiness will die just the same as the guy who never goes to church, who beats his wife, who abuses his kids, who steals, and he cares nothing for any sort of God out there. In fact, he doesn't believe he's even true. Everyone dies. And our author looks at this truth, and he says that this is stupid. This is ridiculous. This is unjust. I mean, he was even further than that, right? He says this is evil. That's how bad this is. It doesn't make sense that everyone ends up dying. There's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. We know this. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes judgment. The point I'm making here is that you only live once. It's true. And then you die. It comes to every single one of us. But this is the key, isn't it? Some people get this and some don't. But for those who get it, but don't necessarily fear God, there's a clear path forward for them. It's the pathway of YOLO. You only live once. Live it up for ourselves. If I know that I only get one life and then I die, I better live it up for myself and enjoy every part of it. I might as well do whatever I want since I'm only going to die like the rest of humanity. Let's eat and drink and be merry. Let's squeeze every little thing that we can for ourselves out of this short existence. If others get in the way of my happiness, that's no problem. I just go over top of them. I mean, if if it results in a little oppression that I can get away with, that's fine. Or if, like, some god says I should live morally, who cares? I mean, I don't see him doing anything about my choices. Everyone still dies, right? Why should I care what he says? No way. I'm going to live it up for myself. This is exactly the attitude expressed in verse 3. Look at it again. Yeah, there's two parts to this. He says in verse 3, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun." The same event happens to all, to, to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see the term children of man used over and over again. And it's a good term here. But not describing good people. It's actually describing those in their natural state before God, that they do things their own way, that they try to figure it out without him, as creatures not submitting to their creator. And here he says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. Now I recognize that there isn't a helpful connection in verse 3 here for us as we're reading along. That word also is is a right translation, it's good, but it doesn't help us see how the first half of verse 3 connects with the second half, so I'm trying to help us see this. Our author is saying that the evil of everyone dying, whether they live a moral life or not, breeds attitudes and lifestyles of evil and madness. If you remember, we actually talked about this back in chapter 8, verse 11. He said this exact thing. He talked about saying that because the sentence, of, uh, this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set to do evil. When an unbeliever then is confronted with the inevitability of death, whether they act the right way or not, they are going to take this time to make a choice and adopt a lifestyle sometimes of self-indulgence at the cost of everything and everyone around them. Now, this is an important observation for us, but it's not the main point of the section necessarily. so we continue here. We will make our own judgments, for sure, about the evil of death coming to all, but that doesn't change the fact that death comes to all that he continues to show us this. We're all subject to the same fate, death. Um, it's an important point that our author is making here. He is now going to make a value statement, like whether it's good or better or best here. In verses 4 through 6, he's going to show us that living is better than being dead. Listen to how he says it in verse 4 through 6. He says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better Than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. I mean, do you hear that? A living dog is better than a dead lion. The living person has hope, the living person has the ability to know, to enjoy a reward to love and to hate, all these passions and envy even, they have a share in what is done under the sun. Now, at this point in our Bible, there isn't a well-developed understanding of the afterlife. We don't have that here up, up, all the way up until Ecclesiastes. When Christ comes, though, we know that he brings the hope of the resurrection that is found in him. But at this point, in one sense, all we know is that God has blessed man while he lives. And after he passes away, he does not know exactly what happens. And even while creation has been marred and struggles under the curse, what is known is that God has made life. And however marred it is, it is still something that is called good. The same is true even now as we sit here after the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The guarantee that we also who are connected to him, will rise with Christ. This isn't just a a theology of settling. Like, well, that's what they knew back then, and we don't have to worry about it today. No, 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 no. This isn't a theology of settling and changes once Jesus rises from the grave. Our perspective on what happens in eternity changes for sure. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this life is a gift, a reward from God. Don't take that lightly. The author believes this so much that he calls the living, uh, the living out of this world our lot or our portion or our share. We see this all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, this is your share. This is your portion. This is your lot. It is the thing that has been given to you. To know and think and feel and experience a life is a reward from God. This is astounding. It's important here for us to understand. Death is inevitable. And here, it was seen as something that is unknown. You don't know what happens. At the very best, this thing is some sort of a big question mark. What happens? I'm not really sure. And the author doesn't say that it's good or bad necessarily. He simply makes the point that since it is unknown, it is best to capitalize on the life that we do have, our share, our lot, our portion. Death comes to all men. It's inevitable. Now, not many people need convincing that that's true, right? Everyone pretty much doesn't deny the fact that death comes to all men. But I'll bet for the majority of us, if we were asked the question, we wouldn't think that we were going to die today necessarily. We, 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 we know Most of us are not 70 or 80 years old, which is roughly the life expectancy in our time period. And we're not thinking, well, today might be the day I die. We know it in theory that that's true. but That's not what we're expecting whatsoever. I mean, the pandemic has certainly had an impact in the last two years, but overall the life expectancy is still in the U.S. between 70 and 80 years old. This is the norm, right? I mean, most of us will probably make it into that 70 or 80-year-old zone. But if we go to verse 11 and 12, we will highlight the fact that you and I cannot trust the norm. We can't trust the most people will probably make it. We recognize that God is in control and something bigger happens to all people. He says in verse 11, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. He says to them, kind of like this, hey, you know those things that you think you know? The statistics that you're so fond of relying on? How fast people always win the race? How strong people always win the fight? How smart people always make the most money and get ahead? If you look closer, you are going to see that there are no guarantees. Sure, the fast usually win the race, that's true. We know that, we understand that. But there has been more than one Olympic event where a nobody has won the race by means of some unforeseen mishap because of chance, right? Some of you may know the story of uh, a man named Stephen Bradbury. He's an Aussie speed skater, but you didn't know that. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Australia, but in Queensland they get maybe one day of snow the whole year. So this is not the culture and climate for like the Winter Olympics. But this guy pressed forward and wanted to do this. For, For kind of context, the top three speed skating nations are the Netherlands, Norway, and the United States. Australia, they barely send any athletes to the Winter Games as it is. But in 2002, Salt Lake City in Utah here in the States, a series of strange and kind of unlikely events led to this Aussie speed skater, Bradbury, qualifying to be one of five men in the Olympic final for the 1,000-meter short track speed skating event. Some of you may remember this. Uh, this was year, if you remember, everyone was wearing the, doing the soul patch because of Apollo Anton Ono, right? This incredible young speed skater who was doing incredible things. But the truth is, in this event, he wasn't even necessarily favored to be the one who won gold. There were other powerhouse skaters in this event. Bradbury was in by some strange form of events that got him there. As you're watching this, and it's worth looking up on YouTube and watching this race if you don't remember it, he's at the back of the pack the entire time. I mean, the, the, the announcer is like, oh, and Bradbury's just way behind. And you watch the four jostling position all the way around, and they get to the last turn. And as they turn, you watch as the first guy slips and trips and goes down. Then the Canadian goes down. And then, the, then the Chinese guy goes down. And Apollo goes down. And the last person to slowly cross the finish line, well, the first one to cross the finish line, is Stephen Bradbury, the Aussie, winning, get this, Australia's first ever gold medal in the Winter Olympics. I mean, you can imagine then at the very end, these guys thinking, is it true? The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. I guarantee those other skaters, Ono and Sue and Lee and Turcotte, were devastated by this event. I mean, you would be too. They had lost by chance, by some measure of bad luck. How did it happen? It's interesting that after the the race, Stephen Bradbury... Made the comment, God smiles on you some days, and this is my day. (laughs) Time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Death is inevitable, and you and I have no idea when God will call our number. There are no guarantees. So I'll ask you, what kind of control do you think that you have with your life? It's right to make plans. It's right to actually plan ahead and to set things in place. Even as Jordan read this morning from James, kind of a, I think he's like a twin of uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he understands and knows that these things are up to the will of God. That time and chance, as though there's some sort of impersonal thing, are actually in the hand of God. This strange little section here actually takes us back to verse 1, doesn't it? Recognizing whose hands we're really in in all areas of life. Everyone knows that there are certain things that are beyond our control, outside of our schedule, missed time for how we were going to do our lives. But in reality, those who trust and know God know that we are in His hand. Time is not ours to control. Events and circumstances are not ours to manipulate Thus, it's clear that death is both inevitable, but it's also something that we have no control of. It's not predictable. It's in the hand of God. And as an apologist or a a, a human, we just say, that's absurd. That's that's ridiculous. What do I do with that, right? Well, yes, but I want to take a minute and focus on death and how he talks about it how he transitions. Let's look back at verse 4 through 6 for a moment. He says this, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know what they will, that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them has forgotten their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share or portion or lot in all that is done under the sun. We said earlier that the author believes this so much that he calls living life in this world our lot, our portion, our share. To know and to think and to feel and to experience life is a reward from God. It is not evil. It is good. So is it absurd? Is there no point in living? Not according to these verses. According to the author, living is one of the things that we actually know. It's something that is actually in our hands. We can understand it in some way. It is the one thing that we can enjoy as a reward, as our portion from God. And because we know that we will die, and because we know that we will answer God, now you and I can rightly understand how we should live. It doesn't take Randy Pausch's lecture, his last lecture, to tell us how we should live our lives right now. The two things here that seem to be stacked up the Un- inevitability, unpredictability of life, and properly fearing the God of all eternity actually give us direction on how we should be living here in this present world. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, go. It's an important distinction. He says, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I mean, what a statement here. We are told not to pine for the afterlife or not to worry about what is to come. We're told to live while we're living to live a full life of joy that's given to us by God. We're to receive God's gifts as he is a good, giving, gracious father. We're to live the short lives that we do have well in joy, not in constant and utter mourning. We're to find joy in our relationships. We're to work hard to use our resources well to gain wisdom and live the life that God has given to us he gives us a list that really isn't necessarily comprehensive, but it does help us cover and realize that he is saying all these things. Uh, In verse 7, he talks about food and wine. He's basically saying, Hey, don't miss the goodness of a freshly baked loaf of sourdough bread with golden butter melting into the cracks. Don't miss the perfectly cooked ribeye that melts in your mouth or or a glass of well-aged wine with all its wonderful tasting notes. God has ordained this path that you're on here. He has already approved what you do. You're still living. You understand? This is his gift to you. Enjoy it to the fullest as the gift is from him. Now we know that these are not things to hold on to, to gain, to grasp, but rather to receive, to enjoy, and to thank him for. Wasn't it Jesus, and this wasn't his way, to enjoy the good gifts of this life? Oh, it's not what he did, right? He was like all heavenly-minded, right? Well, in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, it says that this characterized him so much that he was known for his enjoyment of gifts. But it says this in verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they, say, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Did you hear all those places there? A friend, relationships, food and wine, this guy's a party animal, right? Now, How about, how about, how about John 2.11? It says that Jesus <coughs> turned water into wine, right? No. It says that Jesus turned water into good wine. He didn't make junk stuff. He made delicious, wonderful things for people to enjoy. That they responded, whoa, this is good, and enjoyed this together. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus was not a glutton. Jesus did not worship having friends and relationships. Jesus wasn't a drunkard. Rather, he enjoyed God's gifts according to, shocker, Ecclesiastes nine seven. Now let's go on to verse eight, though. It's so interesting. It's a, a real strange passage, right? It says, "Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head." Yes, folks. He is talking about personal hygiene. He is. He's talking about doing good laundry. He's talking about making sure you're taking care of yourself. He's saying that this life does matter. Even getting haircuts, and washing clothes, preparing ourselves to in daily interactions with one another. Don't disregard the regular parts of living in this world right here. But there's more than that, right? Th- that's true. The Bible is really clear about the process of mourning and lament and grief. Talk about the, the tearing of clothes and putting on sackcloth. The, the idea of putting ashes and dirt on your head and not washing. Do you see how this is exactly the opposite of that? What he's actually showing is the response to the inevitability of death, the response to injustice and struggle and sorrow and grief is not to full-time put yourself in the lament chair. We're just going to lament and sorrow and suffer the rest of the way through. But rather, he says, make your garments be white. May you put oil on your head. He's saying live a life that's postured in joy as a gift from God. In verse 9, he draws our attention to our relationships, right? Now, particularly, he says the wife, but the gist of this section is that we are given friendships and and family and spouses and children. We're given relationships from the hand of God. They are our lot, our share, our portion. Now, I could take a long time with this one. I I love this. I, I find this especially interesting, though, and I won't take a long time, we think about those relationships, especially our family relationships, that we have less than great contact with one another, especially if you're struggling in your marriage. So um, do you see that he is saying that marriage is a good gift and it is our lot and our portion? And if everyone's been married for any length of time, they know that it is not easy. It's another sinner that we are trying to be one with. But he says it is a good gift gift from God. Thus, can I just put in a little to my two cents that's actually backed by a ton of scripture? Work at your marriage. Obey God and love one another. Don't endure. He does not call us to like a slavish, like, well, I I made this promise, so I'm just going to do it. He actually calls us to enjoy these things. That is the right and godly motivation for you to serve one another in your marriages. Now, I understand not every one of us is married. What situation or relationship has God given to you? What family do you have? How many of you view your family relationships in this way, as something that God has given to you to enjoy? Do you pursue one another with vigor and trust God that this is exactly what he has given to you? I'd encourage each and every one of you who's married to make this a goal that you would follow the Bible's instructions for your marriage, and that you would pursue joy in this relationship. And if you're not married, this is still relevant. What relationships has God given to you? Do you see them as gifts to you? Or do you pine for something else? Our author commends the enjoyment of our God-given relationship. But that's not all. Look at verse 10. He says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. We are not given all of these things to sit back, to just indulge, and to do nothing and do whatever we want. Our author tells us that whatever task we are doing, it should not be done apathetically, but rather with some sort of life and joy and effort. Now, I'm not saying, it's it's easy for you to think, I'm not saying this, because I'm a zealous, passionate person, right? I know that. I'm not saying you have to all be zealous about like tying your shoe and like putting chairs away and sundry other things. That's not the point here. I'm not saying that we're the most intense, most zealous person in all the things we do. I'm saying that this is a general way to live that shows that we understand that life is a gift and it is meant to be lived, not endured. Endured. We understand that this is something that God has given to us and that we should then live it well. Life is not something to hold on to or to grasp or to gain, but as one theologian says, gift, not gain, is your new motto. Gift, not gain. These verses are spelling out what it looks like for us to embrace a full life that God has given to us. Now I want to make sure you understand, that doesn't mean that it's all perfect. That doesn't mean that we are on the, the high end of living high on the hog nonstop. The wisdom is for the rich and for the poor. This applies to every single person on the globe. You can joyfully embrace these things whether you have little or much. So don't think that this is about luxury or wealth. This is about enjoying life the way that God has given to it as uh, to us as He is our creator. We're to do and enjoy this as a way to worship our creator, the giver of life. So here we are, brand new year. We, are, we here are together having survived 2021. I'm not being light about this either. I actually want to make a point, especially after a sermon like this. Another year that maybe some of us don't even know, some of you may have survived a disease or perhaps another bout of cancer, or perhaps another year where you haven't died from COVID-19. Another year that uh, you haven't been killed in a boating accident or a car accident or by a heart attack or by a plane crash. Another year that your immune system actually held up and did what it was supposed to, to keep you alive. Another year where we realize that we are just one step away from death. Since we recognize our mortality and our inability to control the times, How should we live as Christians? This is the question that we're coming to. Now, we know better than to live our lives as the children of men and turn to the inevitability of death and say, if if nothing matters, I'm just going to live wickedly and foolishly and do whatever I want. We know that's not the right way. So the question is, how should we respond then to our mortality? Should we focus our time then on all heavenly, all important things and not really worry about any of this earthly stuff at all? Let's let's, let's not make sure any of those earthly things are important. Should you and I embrace the life of a self-denying monk? It's called asceticism. Or should we live a life of lament and constant grief and pain and despair and frustration at all the inequities and injustices and evil things that God allows to happen all around us? Almost like our motto is, hey, life is terrible, don't you all know? Let's live like it. It's awful, isn't it? Is that what we're supposed to do? Brothers and sisters, God has spoken to us. He has told us exactly how we are to live in response to this truth. He doesn't call us to be self-denying monks, although to be sure, listen carefully, if you follow Christ, there will be many good and proper times for us to deny ourselves, for the sake of obedience and a greater joy. But he also doesn't call us to be cultural warriors of suffering and lament and sorrow, although there will be times, brothers and sisters, where the most important and right thing for us to do is lament and weep at the devastation of sin. No, God doesn't call us to respond to the inevitability of our death in either of these ways. He calls us as Christians to pursue the full life that God has given to him with all of its gifts. This is our lot, our portion, our share. We, the righteous, the the, the wise, the ones who entrusted ourselves to the very hand of God, respond by fearing him and enjoying our lot from his hand, living life as he has given it to us. As those who trust God, as those who understand and realize that God is the giver of all things, We understand that they should be received with thanksgiving, not somehow denied as a way to show our own righteousness. So, today, go eat your lunch with joy. Bite into your favorite dish, or maybe just a very simple dish, and rejoice in the God who has made taste and smell and texture and warmth. Wake up tomorrow and drink your coffee with with pleasure and thanksgiving to our Maker. Spend time enjoying and working at the family relationships that God has given to you. They are your lot. Work hard, whether it's at your job, in your home, planning for the future. Have wisdom. Do whatever it is that God has given you to do with your might. Don't just endure this existence. He has called us to life. I find it interesting. I've had some conversations with some other brothers that the evil one doesn't like us to know this, but he's all about death in every single way. Even the way that we live our lives, if they're characterized by death and sorrow and sadness, and not living as reward God has given to us, he somehow, I think he like kind of snickers at us, like, ah, you idiots. Don't you know that God has given you life? We are called to life. Live out your life then with vigor and strength and wisdom and joy. This is our lot from God. Rejoice in him by enjoying it. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious king, you have made us and you have placed us here. You are the one who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. You are the one who puts it in the in the very fabric of our earth to bring forth fruit for us to eat. You have taught us what it means to eat and to enjoy. And Lord, yet in the midst of these things, when we recognize the inevitability of death, we sometimes get the deer in the headlights looking and we're not sure what to do. Lord, we listen to the words of the preacher here, Kohelet, telling us the truth in Ecclesiastes, calling us to live our life to the fullest. May our understanding that Jesus reigns and our hope of resurrection cause us not only to wonder what happens after, but to have confidence in your promises. Teach us, therefore, Lord, to rely on your grace and to pursue joy in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.